You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, in this episode, we go inside the huddle with stage director, cinematographer, and friend of the show, Marcus Shields, and get a peek behind the curtain of Ivo Van Hova's New to the Met production of Don Giovanni, which opens next month. And then, speaking of the Met, <laughs> we never talk about the Met, PJ gives his ringside report on Terrence Blanchard's champion. Plus, in the two-minute drill, did Angela Giorgio actually have COVID, or was she poisoned by a double agent? Dun, dun, dun. Make sure you subscribe to our <laughs> podcast on Stitcher and on Spotify. You just click follow. On Apple Podcasts, you just hit the plus sign. Hey, send us a voice memo or even email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster for your pint. You're going to get the OBS lapel pin for your clothes, all for just sharing your own hot take. And right now, you're going to get Oliver Camacho. You'll be so proud to wear that lapel pin. Uh, you'll never take it off, actually. <laughs> it's all I wear. Weston Williams. <laughs> You're a never nude with the, with the OBS lapel pin. <laughs> if, you, if you, yeah. And if you are nude, try not to wear the lapel pin because that really is nasty. So in Major League Baseball, as we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, the games are indeed faster now that there's mm -hmm. this game clock. Uh, average baseball times of games this season are down by 31 minutes, which oh, is insane. Wow. That's like 20%. That's almost one two-minute drill. It is. It's almost <laughs> one two-minute drill. It's a good unit of measurement. So get this. So um, there's, there's less time to drink beer. So beer sales in many major league stadiums have now been moved to finish at the end of the eighth inning as opposed to the end of the seventh oh. inning. And right here in Chicago in Wrigleyville, it, actually, guys, how would you describe Wrigleyville to folks who listen to the show who maybe have never been there? Gosh. Not sober? <laughs> <laughs> um, douchey comes to mind. Yeah. Um, but also it's, it's sort of a tourist trap for um, white people who like yeah. to wear red, white, and blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the bars in Wrigleyville, of course, are now making Fistful of Dollars because the fans are drinking more there before the games, and then they're getting back to the bars sooner because the nice, games are shorter. Nice. So Wrigleyville mm. has essentially become a worse place. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So if you listen to the uh, Metropolitan Opera Saturday radio broadcast, you for sure have heard this name in the closing credits. But if you are a longtime fan of Opera Box Score, you'll also remember that Marcus Shields was our guest during the pandemic. He is uh, in the middle of rehearsing Don Giovanni uh, as an AD to Ivo Van Hova, and the run of Der Rosenkavalier, the Robert Carson production, uh, is about to close, and he was on that revival direction team. There are many other credits uh, that Marcus Shields has on his CV, and you can learn more about him at MarcusShields.com. But we don't talk about people's CVs on this show. We talk about the hot goss in opera. And Marcus, welcome back to Opera Box Score. 
Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So just today, as uh, we were recording this interview, um, the Met published some images of the rehearsal room, or actually, I what you call that space that they're in, um, of, uh, you know, the artists getting together for Don Giovanni, and we see Peter Matei and Federico Lombardi. Um, and it's very exciting. And there's Eva von Hoven. There you are taking notes. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that picture yet. That's that's been posted. But no. yeah, you're there, and you're very chic, uh, all black outfit with like a legal pad and a pencil. So it's it's great that like you are so close to the action. I'm very excited to see this production. I missed the Rosenkavalier HD because I had to work, but um. I also really wanted to see that, even though that production was the one that we saw with Renee Fleming and Alina Garancha. Uh, so, but I'm more excited to see the Eva Van Hova. What is it like mm -hmm. working with with uh, what do you call him, Evo? Do you call him Van Hova, Maestro Van Hova? <laughs> no, Mr. I call him Evo. That's amazing. Uh, he's been a hero of mine for a long time. I've loved many of loved and seen many of his productions that have come to New York, in the United States. And he's been, for me, one of the stars in the pantheon of influ you know, artist influence for as long as I've been a director and even before. But it's interesting because I've always loved his theater work. I've never, this is the first time I've engaged with something that he's done operatically. So, and actually he's not done so much operatically. This is one of, he's done some things, but it's not the... It's not the go-to thing that he does in his repertoire. So it's been a real privilege to be able to help him into the Met for the first time, help him get acclimated, acclimated to the system, and just generally help create this production of Don Giovanni. Um, yep. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say, because you sort of represent the Met in this circumstance like he's coming in and he's making his debut and you're the person with the institutional knowledge so what are some of the things that you have to advise him on and are there considerations for hd <laughs> well i mean the met is it's a it's a it's weird because when you introduced me you said ad and that's like an assistant director or something like, or an associate director i mean it's it stands for a bunch of different things and that job is a sort of it changes based on where you are. And at the Met, it's a completely unique job. It's not like any other house in the world, I believe. Um, and it's certainly not like any other house in America. And um, so a lot of, you know, a lot of what my job is, is helping him understand the strange, totally insane way that the Met works and the way, in the way that the Met rehearses and puts up productions for stage. And, what that often means is when you're an AD at the Met, you know, what we have on our team is about 20 or so freelance stage directors that are all really established and interesting directors in their own right that come in and have to be mediators for the, the various departments in the Met, all of the technical department, all of the, you know, all of the stage management department, costumes, set, etc. And we, you essentially sit in the middle of it all and lead any new team in the house through the rehearsal process onto stage. And that means a lot of times being on your feet in the room, doing all of the organizing all of the you know all of the 
minute by minute directing, um, especially when it involves chorus, especially when it involves the large forces that always assemble when you put something on stage at the Met. So in that sense, yeah, it's it, a, a person like Evo who is, has his own theater, who, who's worked all over the world, even with all that experience comes in and, and is completely him and his team have to completely relearn how to make a piece of, of theater in the context of the Met. And uh, we sit there and do our best to help it go as smoothly as possible. You have been on a number of uh, projects that were broadcast in HD. Um, I just, I'm, I mean, I feel like that is maybe the main product that all of us experience, experience now since people of my generation even don't listen to the radio, let alone, you know, the millennials and the Gen Zers, you know, so if they're going to have contact with the Met, it will be through HD unless they go to the house. Um, are there some things that you have been able to glean about um, the Met and its relationship to that product and where it's going? The HD specifically? Yeah. They, I mean, the HD is, it's wild because I think it is, it's interesting that it is the thing that you experience most about the Met. To, uh, to If you're just dealing with the day-to-day, -day, it's sort of an, it's an annoying feature because very often it happens on the sixth or seventh show of a run. It's not the way you orient. You don't orient toward the HD, except in maybe the way you think about the granular details of a production. For instance, in a production that was that wouldn't HD, you would let the scale of the house cover up some of the minor sins of like prettiness of a prop or something like that you just let the stage be big you in and that means that you don't have to be as insane about as detail oriented about making sure that the note the hand prop the paper the letter whatever that a person is holding in their hand has an exact set of text that is matching what would be referenced in the narrative that kind of thing that if a HD camera happened to to glide over while you're broadcasting a production, an audience member could easily see, you know, that it's it, you know, they may be able to see what the actual text is and and know that it's it's not exactly what's lined up with what's being said. So there's just this level of attention to detail. That's also in the glassware. It's also in making sure just like every single thing is pristine in a way that you try to do in theater, but sometimes it doesn't. You, you try to do in every production, but it sometimes just doesn't quite happen. Um, but by any, by any chance, did you work on this Lucia? I did. Yeah, that was that was my that was what the end of my last year. Yeah. That wasn't I felt like there are so many props in that particular show and they rebuilt they built yeah. a, a whole city for that one. Yeah, that was like a film set. I mean, that was, again, I mean, it's it, you do it for different things. I mean, theater is theater is made to be artificial and abstract in a, in a different way than film is. And, and it, the HD sort of meets those two things in the middle, right? So it puts on film something that's meant to be theatrical. So you have to tilt the way you would make pieces of theater for... Um, for a film set and that production of Lucia in particular was even more film oriented because it had a lot of onstage diegetic video, I guess you would call it like video that happened in the context of the production 
that was part of the design on top of the fact that it was also hd'd out into the world which was uh i was i managed the hd for that production and that was a, a very challenging i was wondering what if nadine or javier got sick what would you guys do well were they there, were there backup videos yeah we when we filmed everything we did we did everything with their covers so yeah. that it um so that in the <laughs> which was this one of these things that you just never realize that you have to figure out all the permutations of those things mm-hmm. until you end up you know end up deep deep into the tech of the production and you go somebody remembers that in the case that somebody gets sick we have to make sure that this cover does it with that principle and right. that principle does it with that cover. So it's not just, you know, it's like, it's not just two videos. It's eight videos kind of. Thing. Right. Right. Well, I was noticing your fangirling, if I can use that word about Peter Matei. Um, yeah. ha- had you heard Peter Matei before this uh, live, before this rehearsal process? Yeah. I've loved Peter f- for so long. He's been one of the absolute I- vocal idols for me forever. And it's funny because I, I worked with him in Don Carlo in the fall, too. And that was the first time I'd ever... I mean, I've seen him on the stage at the Met a long time, but I've never been in a rehearsal process with him and watched him go through his own workout. And that was kind of this truly fascinating experience of just watching an artist at the top of their game with the most gorgeous instrument that was every day coming into the room, working as hard as he could, thinking about singing every second, thinking about his performance, thinking about how to integrate the desires of the director and the acoustical realities of the set and the needs of the maestro. And he, I've never seen somebody work harder. And even just the other day, I mean, we were he had to do this HD segment as part of uh, as part of the broadcast for Rosen Cavalier and it was a four minute segment where he sings De Viene a la Finestra which he's sung for 20 years 30 years and he could sing in his sleep every time he sings it it is the most beautiful time you've ever heard it sung (laughs) but it's sort of become this you know madness thing for him where he he's always trying to turn his voice into a cello or make it have the perfect legato or figure out how to do this element of singing more beautifully, more perfectly than he's ever done it before. And it's just this striving for greatness that is incredible to behold. It's what, it's why I love that job. I mean, it's why, you know, it's why I like being at the Met is because I love singers. I love watching singing. I'm such a, it is why I wanted to be a director is because I like the weird, insane craft of singing, and I love watching the best people in the world do it. So I'm so glad we got to, to this territory of this conversation sort of naturally because I want to let the audience know that you trained as a singer and you still sing, but I know you first as a singer, and um, I think you're able to speak about singing in a way that maybe some of your peers can't. And I love how you talk about the rehearsal process. And uh, there's something that you say on your um, artist statement on your website uh, that really resonated with me about the experience of, you know, or the privilege, I should say, of being in the rehearsal process with some of these artists and watching this thing that never really comes out 
the same way in the production, but there's like this thing that happens in rehearsal that is uh, so special. And if you could just say more about that, I would love to hear, I would love the audience to hear it. Yeah. I think I had an experience. I mean, rehearsal processes are strange things and they're strange things at the Met. And I wrote that statement out of, because I was really trying to put into words something that I was feeling about my own interests as a director, as a person who puts work on stage or tries to draw people's attention to certain aspects of performance and opera. And I remember having, I've had it have had the experience many times of sitting through a rehearsal process at the Met in the room and, and really feeling the enveloped by the piece, enveloped by the process, watching people figure out the various elements of it, figuring out their own performances. And then you gain this really up close relationship, sort of five feet away relationship to a group of people singing opera, especially singing grand opera, you know, sing Puccini 10 feet away from you or something like that. And then you go up into the Met and into a, you know, 3,800 seat theater, this massive space. And it's like all of a sudden a piece of glass is put in front of the performance where it becomes rather than you being inside of it and being amongst it it's it's like it's behind uh or underneath a cabinet that you're it's like it's in a exhibition and you're looking at it from this critical distance and all of a sudden it's the full shape and you see the flaws and you see all these things so i was i've been thinking a lot about that and i've it's something i've always been interested in and i also had this experience the first show I ever did at the Met was a Madame Butterfly and I remember after two weeks of rehearsal the principals had gained this had done all, gone through all of the staging had it was a, it's the Mingella production it's a beautiful production and it they've they'd gone through all the staging they built these relationships with one another and they get to the zitz probe and it happened in the orchestra room which is this sizable room down in the basement of the met and the whole orchestra's there and it's singers and um i was sitting amongst the orchestra like next to the cello and you're over there as the tenor and you just are in it in in butterfly in this way that you go and they play the piece and you feel it 360 degrees around you and it's something about opera that is so extraordinary this isn't really answering the question but it's it's all part of it's part of the mechanism of how i've been thinking about it and i mean rehearsal is this really interesting thing it's it's a hybrid between what you're actually what people are aiming for in a final product and the the messy imperfect route they take to get there and so a lot of times what you get is this combination of incredibly casual you know in the in in the course of a three-hour rehearsal or a six-hour rehearsal day you'll get this mix of profound moments of focus and concentration and channeling of something and and it's mixed with this really casual real life easy I don't know. It's the texture of the human that they are directly next to the God that they can be when they can channel their talent. Mm. And very often I've had the experience of 
you know, it's 11.37 a.m. and it's been a nightmare of a first half hour of rehearsal and everything was disorganized for the start and the, this crew didn't set the room properly. And so you come in and everything's scrambled and everybody's heart rate's up and it finally things finally settle and you just get to a moment in a in a in a run of a sequence of the show and all of a sudden it one singer decides to sing their aria out and really take a moment to work something out for themselves and nobody expects it to happen nobody's in the mindset of like we're going to hear great profound artistry right now we're going to experience beautiful music but it's like a singer at that level in a room of that level of skill and concentration, it can just start your stop your heart. I mean, it, it it will bring you to tears in a second. And it's this, it's that surprise of never expecting to be moved in that way. And also never expecting to see somebody tap into something so truly beautiful and it just hits you. And I've never experienced that watching a show. I mean, even in the best version of a show, I've never been able to access quite that level of special thing. And I've always had the thought that if you could get an audience to see that or experience it, somehow opera would become or classical music would become this undeniably um, necessary thing in that person's life you know you you would they would become addicted instantly because there's like there's nothing better in the world than experiencing that and so a lot of the way that i think about performance is about how to make that happen and i don't know how to do it i mean part of it has to do with figuring out how to treat rehearsal as the final product or try to bring people into a process and i'm certainly not the only person who's been thinking about that a lot of stage directors have been thinking about that for years but how do you get people to see exactly what that kind of thing is Uh, i i honestly know exactly what you're talking about and uh, i do wish that people more people would get to have that experience um but but don't you you think it's like it might be the thing that i'm sure that working in restaurants is or you know there's a quality to being a part of something where you know there's a lot of artistry and a lot of high skill at the center of it that somebody who's just coming in to experience it on a night on a single night one-off basis just can't you just don't have the frame of reference to really appreciate how special a certain thing is because you you don't know how good how high the level of consistency is every day and you don't know when something you know ticks up to that extra special thing i don't know exactly no that's that's absolutely true i mean i worked in a fine dining restaurant that had tasting menus and you know we'd see the same customers week in and week out ordering the same things and you know they appreciate it but um you know like it really does there are times like you said like when it's everything is spot on and you never know who's gonna get that experience it could be somebody who saved all of their money you know to be there that one night and they receive this thing and they're the ones who end up going on yelp or whatever and writing a review uh, of their experience that we can't even try to match that for somebody else. Cause it was just that special for them, you know? Um, you know, we're running out of time, but I did want to hear about since you're uh, in a relationship with a, a singer and you're watching her um, 
try to break through and have breakthroughs and what that experience is like and how maybe you can say something right now to those people who are singing and are waiting for their break about what what that can mean good or bad yeah i have a i have a a partner that is an extraordinary singer and she is in 2019 she was invited to the marinsky theater as part of their ensemble and a, a job like that means something that we don't really know in the United States, but it's akin to stability and it's akin to a, a, a launching ramp into Europe. And it's a great opportunity. And as soon as she got there, you know, it's a massive challenge to move from, from New York to Russia without speaking the language. And it's, it's quite an intimidating thing. And as soon as she got there about two months in um, the war and you can't read the war, um broke out and she had to flee and of course um there are much more serious things to think about in that situation than the fate of one opera singer but um even though she had that opportunity you know leaving that job meant that all of a sudden she had no work for a year or she had to scramble as fast as she could and she was able to to quickly put things together but Essentially, she has spent the last year and a half trying as hard as she can to make a break into something else to get another kind of job like that. And they are it is very, very hard to to strike that again. And the thing that. I've learned through observation, the thing that she's learned through experience that we have learned through experience together has something to do with the really dry feeling the 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 message that i think gets said a lot when you set out on a career like this that has to do with you should only do it if you're really truly and have to do it because it's super hard and it's and there's no there's there's no you no one deserves it you know no one's entitled to it and so if you want it you have to stop feeling like somebody's going to give it to you and you have to by hook or by crook get out there and make it happen for yourself and a lot of that means that for instance she didn't she needed to get in front of so many different people to sing for them it meant she had to fly to europe multiple times it meant she had to to reverse engineer uh general directors email addresses based on the formula that one person from their uh admin team you know based on the email formula and just cold emailing as many people it just has to do with the tenacity and a willingness to get in front mixed with an insane dedication to being as good as you can possibly be and then you'll fail a hundred times and then maybe something (laughs) will happen and i think it it just has to do with I've, i've watched her do that and i've watched her now get another job that means that she's in a fast contract and and going over to sing and i think it's it's a beautiful thing to watch it happen but it 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 happened not because she's she was talented from the get she's always been good but the thing that made her have the incredible opportunity twice is this incredible dedication and willingness to do this really unpleasant amount of work (laughs) Well, in our last few moments together, um, 
I'll say that the Met has had some PR things to deal with in the past couple of months, uh, namely with Anna's Anna Dutrepko winning that um, settlement uh, with Angela Giragu's, uh you know, interview with Zachary Wolf, followed by her cancellation of her return, and then the whole oh, Sonia Yoncheva so and Norma, and then the Gunter Groisbach yeah. and the Ildars Bratzikov. Uh, are there any one of those stories that you feel comfortable just like pulling back the curtain and sharing what it's like on the inside? Is the Gunter story about that he cursed on on live television? Oh no, I just I thought it was about like him not coming back. Like he, oh, uh, he was he, reluctant yeah. to get a vaccine. Oh, is that what it is? No, we don't know. We just there was a statement oh. that was out there that's like he is not coming back in the near future. You know? Oh. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I think that was because he just wasn't slated to be on the roster. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think that he is coming back. Um, He certainly has done... He just did double Lohengrin and uh, Baron Ox. So he's certainly been around a lot. And he did Don Carlo in the fall. I like Gunter a lot. He's a great guy. Um, So do I. Yeah. um, (laughs) uh, Let me think. Yeah, there's some... I mean... All of those stories are probably what you expect them to be. I think the Angela Giorgio thing was really funny because right as we were starting Giovanni, my colleague, uh, Sarah Myers, was direct, was actually directing. She's mentioned in the New York Times article rather humorously, but she was directing Angela, getting her into this Tosca production. She was doing two performances in the midst of an ongoing run, which is never a very... Uh, it's never a position that puts you on stage with a lot of experience. You sort of have to slot right in and go. But she came in and took up maximum amount of space. I mean, like made (laughs) carpenters rebuild parts of the set, changed the way the jump happened. It was, I mean, it was really, it was wild to hear the stories coming out of, of that room. And, and she also showed up without any interest of, doing the production that you know the met has purchased and the met has puts on and she showed up and did her own staging and (laughs) you know and created this massive fuss and then the night before she and she made the new york the new york times attended you know zachary wolf sat in the rehearsal room for these nightmare rehearsals where you know we as the the spirits of the met us stage directors who make this stuff happen you know we're put in a strange position with one of these these super divas where you know you 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 are trying to accommodate the process of many different people you're trying to accommodate the process of a conductor a a person like matthew polanzani and zelko lucic who are there as well you know these very fancy professionals and meanwhile this other element comes in and is sort of a Tas- Tasmanian, you know, s- spinning force. Yes. Um, <laughs> Secret and, police, by the way. What's that? Secret police. Well, yeah. Maybe you, you didn't hear that story. Uh, what is the story? Um, when she was a teenager, uh, there's a, a story out there that she was uh, like spying. <laughs> she oh. was like working for like Holy the se- the Romanian secret police. So, well, the the real like juice of it was that that it came out on a Friday. She was supposed to do a Saturday matinee, and the New York Times article came out at six p.m. on a Friday. Yeah, and my colleague 
was you know head in hand you know just couldn't believe that they'd they'd really sort of faith that Zachary Wolf faithfully described the experience in the rehearsal room and Peter Gelb was in in that story not saying the most wonderful things it was just a very wild little (laughs) article and then at 605 she cancels and so it it really felt personal (laughs) like it really it felt like a stick in the eye and maybe she had COVID maybe she didn't who knows I mean uh it doesn't matter but it it was it was a an episode in everybody's life. It was like a <laughs> little chapter that in the 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 book of twenty the twenty twenty three season. It will you know you'll flip past it and have a chuckle. Well, the twenty twenty three season continues with Don Giovanni, which opens in May, uh, directed by Ivo Van Hova, with assistance from many people, but assistance from our guest Marcus Shields. Thank you for coming back to Opera Box Score. You got it. Thank you for having me. Singers between 21 and 25 years old, get ready for the Giulio Gari Vocal Competition coming up in early May. Now in its 20th year, the foundation has given over $650,000 to many of opera's future stars. Past winners include Michelle Bradley, Janae Bridges, and Norman Garrett. You can apply on yaptracker.com or just visit GiulioGari.org through the end of April. That's G-I-U-L-I-O. G-A-R-I dot org. Yeah, you ain't got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is Listener Mailbag. Two entries into the Listener Mailbag this week. I consider that a bumper crop. One voice memo. We're <laughs> going to start with PJ and a friend at the Met. Hey, Opera Box Score, this is PJ reporting from the Met. 
I am so excited to be here. This is the premiere at the Met, at least, of Champion by Terrence Blanchard. We just saw him in his silver coat, puffy jacket. It is a scene going on right now at this opera house. It's between the first and second acts. I am here with a dear friend of mine, Mitchell. Mitchell has not been to the opera in more than 15 years. This is not a normal thing for him to do. We've just witnessed something spectacular, I think, Mitchell. What do you think, man? I loved it. I'm a jazz fan, as you know, and I, um, I'm surprised how the story pulled me in. It was dramatic. You just wanted to know what was going to happen. The music just was superb. It just brought you into it. It brought the excitement up. It brought you up. It brought you down. Uh, and I expect to see you in a silver puffy jacket soon. <laughs> hey, Mitchell, did you concentrate on the jazz music? Was the voice distracting? Because you are a true jazz fan. What did you, did you have a jazz experience, do you think? Or was it uh, some sort of hybrid? What did you hear? It was less jazz than I thought. But as I pointed out to you during the, the, the opera, certain things would hit me as being, oh, that's a great riff. That's a great, there's a great piece of music underneath that was building the, the tension yeah. or something. Love that. But, you know, I, I think the thing about the music was that it, it just brought you in. They used it as a screenplay would use it. You cared about the story so much. I didn't realize that uh, the story would be so, so good. I, and it would be a great film. It would be a great film. I would not be surprised if that happens. Let me just go quickly. It's Eric Owens, Latanya Moore, Eric Green was making a debut. We also had uh, Ryan Speedo Green as that young Emil. And also a person that I know, Opera Box score, Helena Brown, a friend of mine, actually. This is her biggest role at the Met. Uh, awesome lady, Helena Brown. That's it from the Met. It's PJ and my dear friend Mitchell reporting to you. We love you all. I really love the sort of jazz perspective uh, on right. this just because, uh, you know, it's it, it really is subtitled an opera in jazz. And the relationship between jazz and classical music has always fascinated me. Um, I, I think that a lot of people, you know, kind of somewhat dismissively talk about jazz and classical music as if it was like right. a brief sort of like crossover cheap sort of entertainment era but it really isn't and uh terrence blanchard has real jazz uh credentials and uh, it's it was really interesting to hear that even though it comes off in a more classical way drawing you into the story there are those riffs and stuff that that are appealing to jazz people here and now. And that that's always been really interesting to me. I love the way that these two described what they saw. I, it is so brave to stage an opera and try and stage like a boxing fight or multiple boxing fights. It's extremely time consuming <laughs> staging fight choreography. And they clearly were into that. Always good to hear from PJ and Mitchell. And then Kenny in Flint, Michigan says, excellent talk with Matthew Principe. I loved the live streaming and VR possibilities. He goes on, Detroit Opera's Fountain of Tears, one of their productions, was broadcast last weekend. It was very good. Some vocal mixing problems, but the music and energy was great. Good stuff happening in Detroit. You too can have good stuff happen to you when you send us a voice memo or even email us your Vocal mixing, is that like a wiki, wiki, wiki type of mixing? That's or? exactly what it is, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you ever want to hear Oliver do that again, just write to us at Upper Box Court. Or if you if you don't want him to do that again, send us $100 and we'll, we'll make sure to I, I edit that out next time. 
What you don't get a choice about is the two-minute drill, which is right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Finalists have been announced for the 2023 Met Lafont competition. They include sopranos Teresa Perotta and Meredith Volgamut, mezzo-sopranos Natalie Lewis and Sarah Saturnino, tenors Yoon Tong Hang, Anthony Leon, and Sahel Salam, baritones Eleomara Coelho and David Wolfe, and bass baritone Christian Simmons. Congratulations to all the semi-finalists. They will be accompanied by the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra for the final round this Sunday, and the OBS is betting that this year, a countertenor will not win. Oh, interesting. Central City Opera is planning on moving forward with its summer festival, even as bitter negotiations continue between the company and AGMA. The union has accused Central City of, quote, systematic union busting, baseless legal claims, and laughable assertions, while Central City has accused AGMA of purposeful deception, saying that all artists had been paid according to the contract and that any assertion to the contrary was, quote, a distraction tactic. Arts Council England has announced that English National Opera will, in fact, receive £24 million of funding over the next three years, following months of public outcry in response to the drastic defunding of the company. The cash comes with strings attached. Equity, the union that represents opera choristers, said that while the extra money was helpful, quote, it's still being given on the condition that the company develop a primary base outside London, which will come at a huge cost to the workforce. Malachi Bayo, the boy soprano who was heckled last fall in his Royal Opera House debut singing the role of Oberto in Handel's Alcina, has triumphed at the Royal Albert Hall, singing Mozart's Exultate Jubilate for a crowd of 5,000. Conductor Vyacheslav Chernukovolich has been sacked by Odessa Opera after appearing in a picture with Yusuf Evazov in Azerbaijan. The Ukrainian opera company said that Chernukovolich's actions are unacceptable in light of the conflict with Russia. It is impossible for us to continue employment of those who do not hold a clear civic and patriotic position. Documents published in Romania's Libertatia newspaper allege that soprano Angela Gheorghiu may have been an informant of Romania's Securitate, or secret police. The soprano seems to have been recruited in 1987, but was not very active in the position and did not denounce any of her colleagues to the organization. The article emphasizes that Gheorghiu most likely joined under duress or, quote, in a moment of weakness. Opera de Lyon has canceled a month's worth of events this summer from July to August due to decreases in subsidies, the energy crisis, inflation, and the social crisis linked to the pension reform. Among the offerings to get the axe was On Puge Bebe, or We Purge the Baby, which we think <laughs> is either a children's opera or a sequel to Electra. Crunching the numbers, the curtain and chandelier fell for the final time last week as the Phantom of the Opera closed on Broadway after more than 35 years. Since its opening in January of 88, the musical has played 13,981 performances to audience numbers of over 20 million, grossed over $1.3 billion in ticket sales, and sparked countless assertions from opera lovers that Phantom isn't actually an opera. 
In trade news, England's Opera North has appointed Laura Canning as its new general director and CEO. She is currently director of artistic administration at Garzington Opera, a post she has held since 2015. She has also worked as an artistic administrator at Welsh National Opera and was the studio director for Houston Grand Opera. On the disabled list, Maltese tenor Joseph Kalgeha has cancelled his upcoming performances of La Traviata at the Bayerische Staatsoper. Kaleha said on Twitter that he's having minor surgery to address acid reflux and that he expects to fully recover by the end of May and is looking forward to his Bayreuth debut in June. Charles Castronovo and Freddy Di Tommaso will split Alfredo duty. And on this day, April 17th, the first performances were Mozart's The Magic Flute in English. Uh, it was a U.S. premiere at Park Theatre in New York City in 1833 and an opera by Sir Edward German called Tom Jones, a comic opera in London in 1907. April 17th birthdays include German composer Johann David Heineken in 1683, English soprano Maggie Tate in 1888, Russian composer Nicholas Nabokov in 1903, Hungarian soprano and actress Marta Eggert in 1912, French soprano Janine Michaud in 1914, Italian tenor Gianni Raimondi in 1923, Italian soprano Graziella Schutti in 1927, German soprano Anja Silja and German tenor Siegfried Jerusalem, both born in 1940. And on this day, April 17th in 1941, it was the birthday, it is the birthday of Adolphus Hailstork. Happy birthday. And that's your two minute drill. Just a little bit of what the uh, classic FM live audience was treated to at Royal Albert Hall when Malachi Bio, age 13, sang alongside uh, baritone Michael Spires and soprano Danielle Denise for this classic FM live event at the Royal Albert Hall. Good on him for coming back from that, uh, you know, being uh, heckled. Despicable uh, act. Yeah. Yeah. He showed he showed you jerk. <laughs> <laughs> jerk was never allowed back into the theater. Yeah, yeah. That that jerk guy definitely didn't see yeah. Malachi do the thing at the Royal Opera yeah. Hall. The Central City Opera, so we are moving closer and closer to the summer season here. CCO clearly believes they are doing a season. Agma has some questions, I think, is one way to put this politely. Right? These two, <laughs> these two organizations are complete loggerheads. We're in this stage of like recrimination here. Here's what I can add to the conversation: is that emails have crossed my desk from stage directors who are on the roster for CCO this summer and have said categorically they will not 
fulfill their contracts until this is resolved mm. in Agma's favor. So they are very, these directors, I'm not going to name names. I don't work with conjecture. These directors are adamant that Agma's in the right and this thing has to be resolved. I predicted in our New Year's predictions, I predicted there would not be a summer season at CCO and I'm looking like a genius right now. <laughs> Does anybody call it CCO besides you? It's just faster. I'm just such a busy yeah. guy. I, I can't. I need fewer syllables. <laughs> I think it's Central City. Um, you know who needs fewer syllables uh, is Angela Giorgio. Uh, that was a really weird transition. But, you know, what's a bizarre transition? <laughs> what a bizarre story. Yeah. It is really bizarre because, um, you know, there was that story from Zachary Wolf, whatever it was, a, year, a week ago. And then there were all the stories that. Uh, you know, riddle right. her her career of her antics. Yeah. What if all that stuff is actually because she's living a double life? What and if? Like, yeah, and like the whole thing with the wig <laughs> and with the cancellations and with the COVID is all because like, uh, she was like of trying to avoid getting caught because she's actually. I a, mean, she a spy. She, she's yeah. a she's a femme fatale. I mean, you look at the book, right? The uh, you know, the photos, <laughs> crazy. No, you're thinking of you're thinking of Sonia Yancheva. You're conflating. You're mixing them up. Oh my gosh, I am mixing them up. I have femme fatales on the mind, George. Yes, you have all those. George. It's because you you have all those short syllables, like the you, you don't have enough time in your brain for because they're full of. It's uh, all acronyms for George. Uh, this was a genuinely uh, really interesting article to read. I, I will say, I feel like I, I don't want to like misconstrue uh, what we discovered. And granted, we were going through Google Translate because none of us speak romanian here on the podcast um so i, well, I do want Oliver to emphasize does, but... that based on based on my interpretation of uh of the article in question um it seems like this is uh she's not being accused of like being like an active secret police agent uh this happened when she was you know still uh studying studying and you know mm -hmm. uh, this Yep. happened very frequently where people where people like that were approached so they could get you know dirt on people in power and arts organizations and uh there was only one thing she ever talked about as far as this researcher can tell and it was a positive comment about another colleague and that was it so uh i don't want to like make it sound like um we are alleging that she was you know a, a criminal mastermind or like a, a soviet sleeper agent um but like it, it is uh it, it was a bizarre story in a slew of bizarre stories uh, about Georgi over the past few weeks here's another acronym for you eno english national opera <laughs> i mean they've they this is this is what they call a Pyrrhic victory, right? Because yes, they've got their their twenty four million in funding, which which they should have. Look, I'm a huge fan of ENO and the work that they do, but to to move out of London, it makes no sense. I've said this before. I'll say it again. So here's the list of cities, and if you're from England, this might have more meaning for you. The list of cities that that they are apparently considering are Hull, Newcastle, Birmingham, Nottingham, Truro. <laughs> <laughs> and Manchester, all right? So here you go. Hull is a rough port town. Newcastle is way too far north. Birmingham has its own opera company. Nottingham is too small to pull an audience. Truro is all the way down in the southwest at the end of a peninsula, which no one goes to. And Manchester is the only one that maybe makes sense. I just don't know why you wouldn't go to Liverpool instead. 
The last option is the London Borough of Croydon, which is in South London. <laughs> Essentially, you know how the Bears are saying they're going to move to Arlington Heights? ENO moving to Croydon is the opera equivalent of the Bears moving to Arlington Heights. It's a, it's really great. <laughs> it's so true. If you live in Arlington Heights or Croydon for your Bears or for your opera, <laughs> for everybody else, it's dreadful and lousy because you have to try and like navigate outside of London. I, I do not understand the logic behind this. In, in fairness, they're they're between a rock and a hard place. You know, the, I mean, I'm glad Arts Council England has uh, given a little bit of ground here. Um, they're, they're still losing money. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I, I think they did realize, oh, if we're going to force them to, like, be completely displaced from their historic home, then we're going to have to give them something, you know? This was a difficult week to put the drill together, actually, because every time I hopped on Google and searched for <laughs> opera, all that came up was Phantom of the Opera, in which oh, I have me too. approximately 0.0001% interest. I mean, uh, I, I'm the same way. I, obviously, Matt isn't here to defend himself on, on that on that count. Um, but uh, for me, you know, I, I feel like the one of the most universal experiences an opera lover can have is trying to introduce this art form to someone new. And they inevitably say, <laughs> oh, I've seen an opera. And I thought it was so appropriate when I was Googling that I was trying to Google the word opera and all that came up was Phantom of the Opera. And I'm yeah. like, this yeah. is the way it should go out, you know, Jeez. being confused for an opera uh, at, 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 to the last. You know, I think it's a it's a little poetic in a way. I will say beyond the jokes of, you know, Phantom of Opera is not an opera. Uh, I, I do think that it's a legitimately impressive feat uh, that many performances, that That's many crazy. ticket sales, that many That's viewers. It's, it, it, it's never been done before. Uh, and it's going to be a long time before someone does it again. The only gross part is that all that money has um, gone to Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's, 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 that's <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, is he the Wagner of our time? Who knows? Who can say? Um, but it, it is. I will say, you know, regardless of how you feel about him, it is. It was definitely a spectacle that really hit at the right time and had remarkable staying power. So, R.I.P. Uh Phantom. Oliver, let's have you put your money where your mouth is in terms of the Met finalists. You may or may not know anything about these up-and-coming singers, but give us a little tip here. Give us a betting tip. Who do we want to keep an eye out for, even if they don't win, you know, for the future? Um, what I wanted to say is that Anthony Leon uh, was the big winner at this year's Operalia so uh, it's not a surprise that here he is um, making an appearance in the mad competition. I'm sure he's great. And like, I have nothing to say about his artistry. You know, just do... just because you win the Kentucky Derby doesn't mean that you're going to win the Belmont no. Stakes or the Preakness. Uh, well, what I'm saying is that, like, I feel like sometimes these uh, adjudicators are a bit unoriginal. You know, they yeah. they might say, oh, well, you know, they, they have that in their head that like he already has been recognized by. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, I have heard Yun Tong Han actually. He was at Ravinia Festival this year as a fellow in the Staines Music Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, very good singer. Uh, but I don't mm -hmm. know any of these other people. So, oh, I know Meredith Volgamut. Uh, great artist. She's very into art song. Uh, she actually is a, she won an art song competition. Again, uh, it's great to see, you know, people winning multiple competitions. I guess it just means that everybody agrees that they're that good. 
anyway, no, we're seriously, we, we love the Met competition. We think it's a great platform, a great springboard yes, for people. Our is. own Arianus Boncon, who I think has been on OBS the most out of all of our friends of show. Uh, you know, he famously won and look at where he is now. So, I mean, <laughs> he already peaked when he was interviewed by us the day after. Yeah. <laughs> all been downhill since then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we wrap up the drill, Joseph Kalea having those. Kalea. Those, those Kale- act- I think you've said it every possible way, but the right way. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. it's probably my acid reflux, which is yeah. causing the problems just like that. Yeah. That's all the femme fatales you got stuck in your head. Oh my there. gosh, man. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to sleep yeah, tonight. Yeah, so Joseph Kalea, um, you know, he's canceling his uh, Traviata. And I guess he's moving on to singing Wagner roles. Uh, was it Parsifal that he was <laughs> yes, scheduled for? Parsifal. And what is going on? What is going on? It's a anyway, big stage to fail good, on. We'll good luck that. to him. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Kaleha. 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 I think that's how it is. Now you've got me guessing, wondering if I've got it now right. Now I'm making but... you mess up. That's yeah. ne- that's never good. Kalea. Well, I think it's Joseph Kalea. Here, here's something you're not gonna, you're not going to make a mistake on, Oliver. It's your good call or your bad call. Tell us what you got. Yeah, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago when yes, and Davies, uh, when James Bowman mm. passed away. Was it last week? I forget. Two weeks ago. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was saying how yes, and Davies was uh, put a call to action out for stories about James Bowman. Um, Gramophone Magazine actually did a story about Yesen Davies and his tributes to uh, James Bowman. It's very sweet. Uh, you can find it at Yesen Davies' uh, Facebook professional page. It's Yesen Davies MBE countertenor. Uh, anyway, we, we got the scoop on that one, but uh, you know now it's in print. Weston Williams. Uh, it's not opera, but I've really been vibing to the new album that just came out uh, last week of uh, John Dowland's Complete Lacrime by Musical Humors featuring um, <laughs> Thomas Dunford and Sons. Uh, and uh, it's a, it's just a really good... I've never been like a big John Dowland guy, even though my father literally went to school with Paul Odette and like, you know, we, I grew up hearing him all the time because of that, but this is just a really, really good album. It's on the alpha label. Everything they do is really cool. It's worth checking out. Alpha is awesome. Yeah. That is it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show, wherever you get your podcasts, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes opera box score at gmail.com. And you can find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that is also where you can put your money where our collective mouths are. (laughs) Give back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is Weston Williams. For guest Marcus Shields, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera within earshot of the Romanian secret police. We're back <laughs> with an all-new show next week when we reveal which sports stories would make great operas. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more pronunciations of don't make me say it. Joseph Kaleha. Kaleha? Kaleha? Join us.